you, Lord. Well, as Pastor Jeff said, I'm going to be sharing on the subject of hell. But it's a really huge subject. And for a half-hour message, it's really hard to do something that's going to have any substance to it. So I really did a lot of praying on what I'm to do and how I'm to go in this. And so this is kind of the direction I want to look at, is I want to look at justice and compassion. And I want to begin with looking at divine justice because I believe before we can understand hell and what I'm going to say about hell, we need to understand the justice of God. We have to become people that are convinced that God is right. And when we're convinced that God is right, then we can begin to understand his justice made manifest and how he is wanting us, compelling us to intercede for them, to cry out for them, and to go to them, and to plead with them to come. And so I think that is a very important uh, idea that we understand that God is doing what is right when he damns a soul to hell, and he's doing what is right when he grants pardon. So let's look first at divine justice. And before we do, let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. And Lord, this is a, a challenging subject to share in a biblical balanced way, Lord. And I just ask for this. I ask for grace to be able to do it. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, amen. God would not be good if he wasn't just. He wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. So God is just, and he is good, and so his justice is good. Every dimension of God is holy, so his holiness touches his justice. So his justice is holy. His goodness is holy. His mercy is holy. Every dimension of him is holy. And so because God is just, he is able to be good, and his justice is good, so he does what is good every single time without fail. There's never a mistake with it. His justice is also unchangeable. It's an unchangeable principle of the nature of God. God cannot change. He cannot be altered. So his justice cannot alter. And when we look at the character of God, God is infinite in every expression of his being. So his love is as infinite as his justice, as is infinite as his wrath, as is infinite of every other attribute of God. There is not one attribute that is smaller or less than any other attribute. So he is infinite in every expression of it. Now, we in America are obsessed with the love of God, and it's wonderful to know that God loves us, but we do that, and in the process of it, we do away with the justice of God, and so we water it down, and we make a universalistic type of concept of salvation or, or make it so wimpy that you know virtually anybody that prays a sinner's prayer must be right with God when that's not the reality of it. Justice is God's righteousness exercised through his moral government. So God is just, and he has a moral government, the kingdom of God, and his justice is righteousness exercised through that. So he is the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ultimate and absolute authority, and his throne is established in righteousness and justice, and he will judge justly every single individual and every angel. God requires all of his rational creatures to conform to his moral law, to be 
perfect because he is perfect. So when we look at this idea of being perfect because he is perfect, it is perfect in, in quality, not in quantity. What I mean by that, he is infinitely perfect. There is no end to his perfection. But we are limited. But we are to be having the same quality, the same holiness in essence that God has. He just has it infinitely more and beyond anything we can comprehend. But he requires all of mankind, every person without exception, there's no exception to this, every human being to conform to his moral law. Now you know what this means? There's only one reason why people go to hell. Because they're lawbreakers against God's moral law. People don't go to hell because they don't accept Jesus as their Savior. They go to hell because they break God's law. They are lawbreakers, and the wages of sin is death. Now it's the mercy of God that brings the cross, that brings Calvary to us. And so he gives an opportunity. Of course, when he brings that opportunity, people are more guilty because they reject it than if they have never even heard it. And so God rewards or punishes according to the requirements of his law. He has established the law. The law does not control God, but God has established the law according to his character, and he upholds that law, and he can do nothing else because that's who he is. He must do it because that's his character. So it's not the law making God do something, but it's God that has established the law out of his character. That's who he is. He will be consistent and faithful in every dimension of upholding the requirements of his law. And so here you have Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah in the 25th verse of Genesis 18. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is before the Bible. You understand? Before the Old Testament scriptures. And yet he's understanding a dimension of the righteousness and justice of God that the majority of Christians don't even comprehend. And they have the word right there. They have it right there so that they could study it. God is just. He will always do right. And the wicked will not share in the blessings of the righteous. And the righteous will not share in the wrath of the wicked. So he judges perfectly as being infinitely righteous. God can only regard all sin as inherently hateful and hostile to his creation and person. That is a serious issue. We got to understand every single sin is an offense to God. And because God upholds his righteous law, he must deal with that sin. So we can think of it as a virus that comes into a body. What does our body do? It responds to it. There's this thing that has entered in that our body says, this is bad, we must eradicate it. We must get this out. And so our body goes through all the process of trying to free itself from that virus to overcome it. But think of sin and every expression of evil as this disease that got into God's good, perfect, beautiful creation and corrupted it. And God says, I must deal with it and I must deal with every single bit of it. And I cannot let none of it go without being dealt with because I will not have it destroy my creation. Now, God will ultimately do away with all evil. He'll do away with all sin. He'll do away with it. So there'll be a new heaven and new earth. He will speak a word and all of creation will be destroyed by fire. 
And then he'll speak another word, and a new heaven, new earth will come in. Then there will be this place called the lake of fire that is quarantine for evil. Think of that, eternal quarantine where evil can never get out of it, ever. It is there forever in itself, unable to touch God's creation. So people go to hell because they're lawbreakers. So in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, do not be deceived. Who is he speaking to? Christians. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. You see, we always got to remember both sides of this reaping and sowing, the good and the bad. We got to understand both are there. Sometimes we can get so hung up on the bad that we're always telling people, you reap what you sow and trying to stop them from sowing rebellion and sin that we forget to go to the righteous and say, you reap what you sow. Right? Because if we're righteous, we're walking right with Jesus, we are going to reap the benefits of the Spirit and life in us. We're going to see the blessings and everything else. But for those who don't know God, they will reap destruction. And the destruction here is not annihilation where mankind is done away with, but is the destruction of their life as what would be good and what God wanted to do for them. And so it's just for God to punish every sin. And I'll tell you what, if we don't really understand the power of forgiveness, the necessity of it, then we're missing something really important here because if I don't get forgiveness for my sins, I'm going to have to answer to them before God. And he will recompense me for my sins. And that is not, that is not a safe place to be. That's why understanding the absolute necessity of repentance and forgiveness is so vitally important. And that's why the church is doing so much damage to its own people, keeping that message from them, because people then remain in sin and they don't deal with it, but God will recompense people for their evil. Terrifying state that the church is in. Terrifying, terrifying, because they don't comprehend what the justice of God really is. God created us as eternal beings. We will live forever. There's a beginning, okay? Only God had no beginning, no end. Angels had a beginning. They will live forever. Mankind has a beginning. Each person has a beginning. They will now live forever. They are now eternal creatures. That is a God that God has given mankind. He's given it to angels. Now the problem you have is he gives that gift, and if we do something wrong with that gift, we can't blame God for it. The angels that rebelled against God and will one day be cast in the lake of fire are there because they rebelled against God, but God did not take from them the gift that they would live forever. They still have that gift, but now because they're rebelling against God, it is a place of eternal torment. God has given mankind the gift of eternal life. We will live forever. If we serve him, we will have the joy of living forever in his presence. If we don't, there is the horror of living separate from him forever. So there's no way we can do away with the gift of eternal life. And I refer to eternal life just as the aspect of eternal existence beyond the grave. Whether it's life or eternal death, the eternal suffering or separation from God depends on what we do with Jesus. God cannot let the wicked into heaven. He cannot. He would be unjust, just like I opened with. He would be unjust. A verse I know that comes out often, and I bring it out often even in my podcasts and preaching, uh, 
2 uh, Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the heart of God. In one of the places in the Gospels, I forget off the top of my head where it's at, but um, he tells us that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. And then I would venture to say before the great rebellion, hell was not even there. But it was a response to the rebellion of angels. You know, it's a scary thing that when God creates beings that are rational beings, they have to have a free will. They have to have a, a mind to be able to think. Otherwise, they're not really free. That's a whole different subject. But guess what? Because God doesn't want anybody, anyone to perish, that's what Calvary's all about. That's why he went to the cross. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He made a way so that God could be just in forgiving us. You understand, without the cross, God cannot be just in forgiving us. We deserve the justice of his wrath. But Calvary made the way that justice could be satisfied by Christ taking upon himself the punishment we deserve, and by taking the fullness of that punishment upon himself, we could be forgiven. We could be set free from the justice and the judgment that would come upon us. The only way that people can be freed from the consequence of sin is through Calvary. It's the only way. There's no other hope of salvation. There's no other means for them to get right. That is it. And if they don't come to Jesus, if they don't understand the cross, they are left in their sin as lawbreakers. And they will face then the justice of God that is justly delivered to them because they are willful lawbreakers. They are lawbreakers by nature and by choice. Jesus deserves a reward of his suffering. And that's our responsibility to let a perishing world know. But I'm not going to deal with that part. I want to look at hell, and I'm just going to look at some aspects of hell. There's so much to it. It's such a, uh, a humongous subject. I want to look for a moment, and I'm just going to give an outline of Matthew 25. And Matthew 25 is actually part of Matthew 24. So it's a continuation of Jesus' discourse on his second coming. And uh, at the end of chapter 24, there are three parables. And all three parables are, well, all six parables, in Ma the last three in Matthew 24 and then the three in Matthew 25 are, are very simple. You could say it like this. All those parables have one ultimate theme. Get ready. I'm coming back. Okay, get right. Get the sin out. Get your life right. Live ready because at any moment, you do not know when I could come back. And so that's the whole purpose of those. So in Matthew 25, there are three parables. I'm just going to highlight what they are and bring out what Jesus has to say about the aspect of hell here. The first parable is the parable of ten virgins. And what this is all about is you have ten virgins. They all represent the bride of Christ, okay? They're all, they're, they're, they're portrayed as bridesmaids, but to avoid the whole concept and look of polygamy, you know, it's, they're just referred to as bridesmaids. But the picture is of the church. So you have these ten virgins that represent the believing church. So all ten virgins are walking with Jesus. All ten virgins are right. All ten are engaged, in essence, as spouse to Christ, all ten of them. But however much time goes on from their espousal 
till when the wedding is to come, and they don't know when that's going to happen. So until that time, they are to keep themselves ready. Five remain ready, five don't. Five are wise, five are foolish. The expression of this is oil in their lamps. The lamps refer to, to the idea of the vessel, the oil of the Holy Spirit dwelling in. The fire that would be in the, in, in the lamp is representative of the life of Christ, the fire of God inside of us that gives us life. The foolish let their oil go out. The five wise ones tended it and took care of it. Now, if you understand this parable, it gets down to this. The five that were foolish did not make heaven their home because they did not have a fire for God. That's kind of disturbing, isn't it? Now, what I would really put this down to is that this first parable is about the greatest commandment, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what it's ultimately about. But if we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, what does that look like? Isn't it an all-consuming love? Isn't it an all-consuming faith? And isn't it something that he defines every aspect of our life, everything we do and say, that he defines how we live in our marriage and how we work everything? Doesn't he define every dimension? Because you can't love him with everything in you and not have part of it surrendered to him. So this is about full, wholehearted surrender. And that those who didn't have the fire of God, when the bridegroom came, they went to go and try and find some, some oil, but it was too late. They come knocking on the door, and they, they say, open to us. Matthew 25, verses 10 through 12. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Just like with the ark, right? The door was shut, that's it. When he shuts the door, it's shut. There's no getting in. No other way to get in. The door is shut. And later the others also came, Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I don't know you. My bride is beautiful. She's spotless. She has a fire burning and a passion for me. You don't have any of that. You once walked with me, I don't know you. And where that idea comes where I don't know you, it comes out of Ezekiel chapter 3, chapter 18, and chapter 33. Those three chapters where he speaks of a righteous man turns from his righteousness, I no longer remember his righteousness. So Jesus can go to a, a, a virgin that he was espoused to, but then say to this virgin, says, I don't know you because you did not walk with me. You did not love me. You didn't serve me. You let the fire go out that you once had, or that began when you gave yourself to me that was small, but you never allowed it to grow bigger, and it burnt out. The second parable is the parable of the talents. So the first parable is about the greatest commandment. The second parable is about what we do with our life. And so the whole picture here is of three people. I'm not going to get deep into this, just try and highlight it, but of three people that the master gives a certain amount of talents to. So the talents isn't physical talents. I can play guitar or whatever. It is the aspect of money, and talents were actually a, a very large amount of money. So to one he gave five talents, a whole lot of money, another two talents, another one talent. And he gave each of them according to their ability. So he wouldn't give five talents to a man or woman who could not handle five talents, but would give one talent to the one so that he would not overload them. So it was all within their ability to do with that talent according to God's will. 
He went away. When he comes back, he calls his servants to him. And he says, okay, I demand a reckoning now. What did you do with the talents I gave you? The first one comes, the five talents you gave me, I have used them, invested them, and I gained five more talents. What does the Lord say? Well done! Enter into the joy of your Lord. To the one who had two, he says, I increased it to two. Well done! But there was, to the one he gave, only one talent. And to that one, he says, show me what you have profited. So here's what that man says to Jesus. Oops, I didn't put that in. Oh, here it is, okay. In, in Matthew 25 or 26, his master replied, you wicked lazy servant, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. What happened is the servant went and responded to him and says, basically he did some blame shifting. He says, I did not bring any increase because I knew you were a hard man and you reaped where you did not sow. And all of that was a lie, you understand? It was the master that gave him a talent to invest. So what had happened in this man, he had a twisted, perverted view of God, made him a harsh, cruel God that was unjust, and then responded like that without the investment of his life. And so he called the man a wicked, lazy servant. Now, it doesn't mean that the man wasn't busy about life. He probably had his job and his house and his business and all the other things that went on. But he was lazy about what was important, the most important about his spiritual life and about the souls of those around him. He was lazy spiritually. And he made the excuse of it, right? Can't we make our own excuses with it? It doesn't mean we're going to be left outside of heaven, but it does mean that, that we may have to answer to God for what we have done. But in this case, the man was so rebellious against it that he was cast out. Because in the 30th verse, he says, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throw him outside in utter darkness. Because to Jesus, not using the talent that he has given us, which is ultimately our life, okay? I'm going to just bring it right down to a simple thing. He has given us life, and he demands of us the return of that life the investment of our life into what is of true and eternal value, that we spend our life, use our life for his glory, and not to try and get some reward. So the two that, that increased their wealth from that didn't do it to try and say, I want some great reward. But they were doing it out of obedience to the master that says, here, take this money and invest it. Do something, make it grow. They were faithful. They were investing what God had given them. And so what happens to those who basically go to God says, I know you created me one way, but I will not live like that. I will live my own way, the way I want to, without anything of your interference. What is that? That's raw rebellion. It is the, it is the spirit behind the lawlessness of sin. And so he called the servant wicked. He called him lazy. He called him worthless. And cast that servant into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you know, I'll just be really honest with you here. And, uh, you know, I know I've read the, the book by Bunyan. And, I mean, there's some books out there on hell that give you the shivers. 
Um, I'm not sure how much of it is true. Um, I've never been there, so I don't know. What we are told about hell is enough to try and uh, make a squirm to cause us to be very concerned. But I have a hard time with seeing God as sadistic. And sad being sadistic is the idea that he would enjoy inflicting pain and suffering on people. God does not enjoy inflicting pain and suffering on people. And in hell, I don't believe that it is an active act of his purposely tormenting, and I'm going to make you, your eternity so miserable. I think what this is really all about, because the idea of gnashing of teeth is not about pain. Nowhere is that ever used for pain. Gnashing of teeth is all about anger and hatred. It is, that's what it is. Hatred towards God. And so since you have the gnashing of teeth that is an expression of hatred, I take the weeping as the emotion behind the hatred. Not the idea that God is up there beating them or sending bolts of lightning or they're in this flame that's burning. The flame gives an image of a torment that's there. But I believe the greatest torment, whatever everything else might be, however we may understand that, the greatest torment is the utter, complete absence of the tangible presence of God, which I think is greater torment than we can ever fathom. That everything God is, all of His goodness, kindness, mercy, gentleness, everything that He has made that's good in this world is utterly, completely absent in hell. And they are left in this utter absence, this, this vacuum where there is no goodness, no love, no mercy, forever to be tormented by their own lust, by their own pride, by their own filth. Left to themselves in utter Darkness, And I think the agony of this, as I have sat down and dwelt on this so many times, it is a horror to me that is worse than anything I can imagine. The horror of hell is the tangible absence of God. Then you have the final parable, the sheep and the goats. Now we cannot understand this final parable, and here's the problem. If you take this parable and you interpret it by itself, Without the other two, you're going to have a distorted idea of it. You're going to have a workspace religion. But when you understand it in light of the other two parables, you understand what's really going on because the parable of the sheep and goats is judgment according to the second commandment. According to what we do in the second commandment, whether we act like Jesus to others, what we do to others, we're doing to him. Whether we neglect people or whether we serve them and, and share Jesus and the things they need of life. And so this is a very important thing here because it comes out of the talents. It comes out of what we are doing, investing with our life. So it flows out of that second parable, and the second parable flows out of the first parable. They are so tied into each other, you can't rightly separate them, and if you do, you teach something wrong. And so according to the, this parable, those who did not show compassion to others, failed to show compassion to Christ. And they are separated from Christ forever. Those who showed the compassion of Christ to others will find his joy, his peace, his acceptance, his welcome home. In the 46th verse it says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's a difference. 
And you see, we have the responsibility to bring to people the truth that there is hope and eternal life, but if we reject that, that there is judgment. Love warns. Love warns. If you have a little child and that child is reaching out to the flame on the stove and wants to touch the pretty blue flame and doesn't understand it's going to get burned by it, for the mother just to watch and let the child do it is not a very loving act. You see, a parent responds with love, which is manifested in discipline and encouragement, rebuke, and so on, all those dynamics to it. And so God is warning us that we would remain faithful. Chap, you know, Ezekiel chapter 3, 18 and, verse, and chapter 33. All of them are about the watchmen. The call of Ezekiel to be a watchman and to warn the righteous and to warn the wicked. And if he warned the righteous and the wicked, he was released from the responsibility that God put upon him, from the talents he had given him. He was released from it because he was faithful. He invested what he was given and he was pleasing to God because he invested in that. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final end of all those who die without Christ and of every fallen angel. And so when Jesus comes back the second time, when you read the account of it, you know the first thing he does? You know the first people in the lake of fire before any angel is he goes right up to the Antichrist and the false prophet, grabs them and it says, hurls them into the lake of fire. They are the first there. The lake of fire is called the second death, the second judgment. Because what happens at that lake of fire, there is no escape. There's no purgatory, no such thing. And they are brought up after being in hell. They are brought up to the white throne judgment for their final judgment, not because God has to convince us, not because God has to convince us he's right, but just like when you read in Revelation the various points when judgments come out and then the response of angels, they say, you are just and right and glorious in all your judgments. That's what the host of heaven will say when they look upon it and they see the reality of the wickedness of mankind and of angels and what they did and we will acknowledge the justice of God in His eternal act of damning them to hell. Pastor Jeff shared this this morning in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Now, I'm not going to get deep into this, but the judgment seat of Christ is most often considered to be the judgment that comes upon Christians that is different than the judgment upon non-Christians. The judgments upon non-Christians, they will be judged for their sin because they rebelled against God. The judgment for Christians is more like the rewards that are given at the Olympic Games of those days. And so they are when rewards come out and they are either given or none are given because somebody gets in by the skin of their teeth. But he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. The revival I was saved in 
had a tremendous backsliding rate, probably at least 50%, because the foundation was very poor. Come to Jesus because he'll make your life better. You must be born again. But there was not the call to repentance like should have been there. The foundation was faulty. And so people didn't understand what the salvation was. They didn't understand that coming to Christ was deliverance from sin and deliverance from damnation and bringing, being brought into the life of Christ to live in the fullness of His holiness and splendor. I just want to close with a story. And then we'll go to prayer. Sorry, I'm taking a few more minutes than I planned on. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had a dream. He was on a train. And uh, while he was on the train, he had this vision. And in the vision, what he saw was this huge, raging ocean. I mean, it was raging ocean. And the storm clouds above were black, and lightnings were just flashing all over the place. And as he was looking, he went and saw that out of this, this stormy, raging sea was this mountain that was huge, and it went up beyond those storm clouds up into the heavens. And then he saw around that whole, whole mountain was a platform that was built, and it was above the waves, and the waves could not touch it. And all these people were on this platform, and they're walking along, and they're talking, and they're living life oblivious to the storm. And then he started looking deeper. And as he looked deeper into it, he saw the sea was filled with the faces of individuals. The sea of humanity, this raging sea, people under the wrath of God, and that's what the storms cloud and the lightning portray was the wrath of God being poured out upon mankind because of their refusal to repent, because of the sin that they practice, because they are lawless against the, the laws of God. And yet there was the platform, which was symbolic of the church, and he looked at it, and the church was oblivious to a sea of humanity that was rushing to hell that soon would go under the water. So many of them would, would do it in moments, would die, never to rise again to face the justice of God. And yet as he looked, he saw a boat here and there in the water, and he saw a few people hanging over the side trying to grab anybody that they could. But the mass of the church was oblivious, oblivious to that sea. And that's a real picture of what we are facing. It's really, really easy to be unmoved by the mass of humanity that is drowning because we don't see the agony on their faces. We don't hear their cries as they are drowning in their sin and rebellion. We don't see it. But may God open our eyes.